your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to 1 Peter chapter 1. In just a moment we're going to begin reading with verse 18. The title of our message is A Bloodless Cross. We're beginning a sermon series entitled An Exposé of the Church, the Modern Church. And we're looking at some of the characteristics of the modern church. And we're asking ourselves, are they biblical or non-biblical? Are they sound of doctrine or not so sound of doctrine? They say that ignorance is a bliss. I disagree. As you and I gather here this morning, there's at least three things we better be aware of. We better be aware of what's going on in our world. Our world is a tinderbox awaiting explosion. You better be aware of that. You better be aware of what's going on in our nation. Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. That's America. And unless something dramatically and radically changes in our country, our country is headed for a fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to put us back together again. And we better know what's going on in the church. The church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is being eroded foundationally. The things that once were true are no longer true. The things that were righteous are no longer righteous. The modern church has decreed that there are some things that we can discard today. And we're going to be talking about some of those things in the weeks to come. Some sermons are to move your heart, to touch your feelings. This sermon series is not about touching your heart. It's not about your feelings. It's about touching your mind and helping you understand with your thoughts what's going on in the church. And I want you to listen closely. I want you to really listen closely. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. The Apostle Peter, writing to the church of his day, writing to those who claimed the name of Jesus in his day, writing to Miles Road Baptist Church this morning. And he reminds us of one of the great doctrines of our faith. A doctrine that even in his day was being downplayed. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, you weren't saved by the things of this world, no matter how valuable they are. You're not saved by your vain lifestyle, your vain rituals received by tradition or custom that were passed on from your fathers. Your salvation, your redemption, is through the precious blood of Christ, who is the Lamb without spot and without blemish. A 
about 25 years ago or so, a group of so-called Christian growth experts convened together to talk about the state of the church. The two topics that they were most interested in was how to attract and retain young people who were leaving the church in droves. So young people, they talked about you. What is it we need to do to attract you and retain you in this church or any church? And then they also talked about how the church as a whole can be more appealing to the world how we can be more culturally relevant, you might say. These experts from multiple denominations and no denominations, these experts that were big shots and little shots, they all came together with their PhDs and their learned through experiences, and they talked about what we can do in these areas. Their conclusions were twofold. And what they did 25 years ago has been unveiling itself now and continues to. What did they decide we can do? Are you ready for this? We can dumb down the message. People aren't interested in doctrine anymore. It's difficult, it's divisive. We're just going to get rid of the teaching of the Bible. We'll teach truth, but we'll teach truth that everybody agrees with. Generalized, ambiguous truth that you could learn anywhere. The Dalai Lama could teach it. The Pope could teach it. Anybody could teach it. Because it's just general truth we would all nod our head to. So they walked away saying, we're going to dumb down the truth, dumb down the message. They also came away with another conclusion. Not only do we need to dumb down the message, we need to lighten up the requirements. We don't need to talk anymore about moral absolutes. You want to have a filthy mouth, you can have a filthy mouth. We're not going to say nothing about it. If you want to shack up without the benefit of a marriage and practice immoral sex, you can do it. We're not going to say nothing about it. If you want to socially drink, smoke pot, we're not going to say nothing about it. If you want to look like a slob, we're not going to say nothing about it. We're not going to say one single thing about moral absolutes. If you want to do it, you can do it. According to these experts, the emphasis needs to be not on making born-again Christians and growing them in their faith. It's about drawing a crowd. And when we draw the crowd, then we got an opportunity to evangelize them and maybe they'll become Christians. We're going to eliminate everything that has to do with contriteness, conviction, conversion, change, or commitment. We're going to open up the doors to everybody. Come as you are, do as you please. Just come. And maybe, just maybe, you'll come to know Jesus, but if you don't, well, 
Who cares? That's what came out of that think tank. Now I'm being a little bit more crass than they would be because they would camouflage these things with big words and they would say these things in a way that tickles your ears, makes you feel good about it. Ladies and gentlemen, this morning, our faith is being eroded. You can picture a slab, a foundation, and underneath that foundation, the sand and the rock and the dirt is being washed out. One day, just like our world and our nation, the church is headed for collapse. And one of the tenets, one of the doctrines that has been eroded away, you might say, and is being eroded away, as I stand before you this morning, is the doctrine of the cross. There are many today who are telling us we don't need a Lamb of God anymore. We don't need a Lamb of God who shed His blood and sacrificed His life for the sins of the world. It's not needful, it's not necessary. We're more sophisticated than that, they say. And so these pied pipers of the modern church, with a smile on their face, and their hands on your wallet are leading people to hell and the masses to confusion. Two things I want to lay on your heart this morning as we talk about a bloodless cross. A cross without blood. A cross without a Lamb of God. Think with me, first of all, about the denial of the blood of Jesus. I'm going to read to you some quotes from some preachers. I'm not going to tell you their name because I'm not going to give them false advertising. Got to pay for advertising around here, so I'm not going to mention their name. But I'm, I want you to see what they say. This is what the new pastors of new churches that run the gamut across any denomination. So you Baptists don't sit out here and say, that ain't us. Yes, it is. I want you to listen to what they're saying. And by the way, a man will preach what he believes. So if you ever sit under a man's ministry and he never talks about anything doctrinal, why doesn't he talk about it? Because he don't believe it. But these, i got to give these ones credit. They at least tell you up front what they believe. They don't try to hide behind silence. A Methodist preacher said concerning the shed blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, he said it's a gospel of gore. A Baptist preacher talking about the Lamb of God, the shed blood of the Lamb of God on a cross at Calvary, said it's a relic of days gone by, an antiquated belief 
from unlearned pagans of yesteryear. Think about that. Peter and Paul and John were unlearned pagans who didn't know what they were talking about. A Presbyterian preacher called the shed blood of our Lord totally unimportant, irrelevant, and insidious. A non-denominational preacher said, I've taken the violence and the bloodshed out of the gospel because it's too offensive to many people. A megachurch preacher said, I emphasize the life of Jesus, the teacher Jesus, not the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God. A Pentecostal preacher said of the shed blood, it's too heavy and negative to sing about or preach on. It's no longer part of our services. We're not going to sing about power in the blood no more. We're not going to sing about what can wash away my sin. We're not going to sing about there is a fountain filled with blood. That's too offensive. Those songs we'll cut out of the hymn book. And those passages we'll cut out of the Bible. We're just not going there no more. And I could go on and on and on, but get it down big, plain, and straight. To the new church and the new leadership of the new church. The Lamb of God and the blood of Jesus is downplayed, disdained, and even denied. Now lest you think that's not a big deal. Lest you think Pastor Jim, he just gets a little bit exaggerated sometimes, a little hypothetical. You know, he, he just gets wound up a little bit. He's, a, he's an old fella, they do that. Well, I do perhaps at times. But you better listen to this old fella who gets wound up a little bit. Because I want you to know what the Bible says about those who would deny the Lamb of God and the shed blood of the cross. I want you to hear what the Bible says about them, about their spiritual condition. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, talks about those who have a problem with the Lamb of God, who have a problem with the shed blood. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Wow, that's pretty strong, ain't it? The message of the cross, the Lamb of God, the shed blood, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 23 and 24, he says, We preach Christ crucified. We preach the Lamb of God. We preach His shed blood. We preach His crucifixion. But to our Jews, it's a stumbling block. To our Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So if a man stands in a pulpit, or a Sunday school teacher stands behind a podium, or a small group teacher sits in a stool in front of you, and they tell you that the shed blood's not important, that the death of Christ on the cross as the Lamb of God is not relevant, 
You know why they say that? Because they're fools who are perishing. That's what he says. Jesus said concerning the Lamb of God and his shed blood on the cross, he said, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. Jesus believed in he was the Lamb of God. He believed that his shed blood, his sacrificial death on a cross at Calvary was necessary for men to be saved. Peter says, verse 19 of the verses we just read, but the precious blood of Christ. How many of you would ever call blood precious? Peter was an old rugged fisherman. And yet when he thought about the shed blood of Jesus, he said it's precious. That was not a word I would use or you would use, but he said it's precious. Because it comes from a lamb who has no blemish or spot. Paul said in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we're not talking about something that's incidental. We're not talking about something that's trite. We're not talking about something that's minor. We're not talking about something that you can give and take. It's optional. We're talking about something that's fundamental. If you cannot accept the shed blood, if you cannot accept the Lamb of God who shed that blood on a cross at Calvary, the Bible says you're foolish and you're perishing. Now the second thing I want to talk to you about, we've moved now from the denial of the Lamb of God and the shed blood to the doctrine of it. Doctrine, pastor, you're not supposed to talk on doctrine. The experts said you can't do that. Who cares? You better know doctrine because doctrine is what makes our faith our faith. When you don't have doctrine, you don't have a faith. Doctrine is very important. That's why Satan erodes the foundation of the church He attacks the doctrine of the church because he wants the church to collapse and it will collapse without doctrine. Why do you believe what you believe? Well, I believe what I believe because the pastor believes in it. What's the pastor believe in? Well, he believes what he believes because the church believes in it. What's the church believe? The church believes what it believes because that's what the denomination believes. Well, what's the denomination believe? Oh, they believe like Pastor Jim. (laughs) Like a dog chasing his tail. We just go around in circles. What do you believe? And why do you believe it? Young people, what do you believe? Do you believe it just because Sam says it? The teachers that he has on his staff under him, they believe it? Or do you believe it because you've got in the Word and you found it to be true for yourself? So what I want to do in our time remaining is I want to take you back to the doctrine of the Lamb of God and the shed blood of the Lamb of God. 
which is necessary for our sins to be forgiven, for us to be born again, and for us to live in heaven one day. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 12 with me. We're going to finish there. We're going from the denial of the Lamb of God in the shed blood to the doctrine of the Lamb of God in the shed blood. Where did we get this idea from? Now, as you're turning to Exodus chapter 12, I want you to understand something. This is very crucial for those of you who want to understand the Bible. The Old Testament is a preview of the New Testament. When you go to the movies, they often, before they show you the main movie you came to see, they show you previews of movies to come. These previews whet your appetite, you might say. So you'll want to come back and see them later. The Old Testament is a preview of something that's going to come later in the New Testament in full picture. The Old Testament is a shadow of the person who's going to come in the New Testament. The Old Testament is the foundation the seedbed of what's going to come in perfect fruition and perfect completion in the New Testament. So when we talk about the foundational doctrinal truth of the Lamb of God in His shed blood for our salvation, for our forgiveness of sin, we got to find out where did that come from? Well, it comes from Exodus chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Let's read those verses together. Now, what you're reading is about the first Passover lamb. You're reading about the Israelites who were under bondage to Pharaoh, who were slaves in Egypt. And this is what God tells them to do if they want to be set free if they want to be saved, if they want to be safe, if they want to have a life of freedom and liberty in the Lord. Now pay attention as you read, because I'm telling you once again, this is a shadow of something that's coming later. See if you can figure it out. Follow with me carefully. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. He said, this month, shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak you to the entire congregation of Israel. You tell this to every man, woman, teenager, and boy and girl that's out there. In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. If the household be too little for a lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take them together. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, the lamb that you choose on the first month of the ten day, tenth day, your lamb shall be without blemish. He shall be a male of the first year, and you shall take him away from all the other sheep or from all the other goats. You shall keep him isolated until the 14th day of that first month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel 
shall kill the lamb in the evening, slaughter the lamb in the evening, and they shall take of the blood that comes from that slain lamb and strike it on the two side posts and the upper door posts of the houses where they shall eat it. And then they shall eat of the flesh that night, roasted with fire and unleavened bread, and with the bitter herbs they shall eat of that flesh. Now pay attention, you're going to learn something. Moses is addressing the Israelites who are under bondage to Pharaoh and slaves to Egypt who are dying there. Unless God intervenes, they will perish there, under Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. Remember, the Old Testament is a preview of something coming down the pike later. God is going to one day speak not just to the Israelites. He's speaking to whosoever will listen. And God says, you too that I'm speaking to are under bondage to Satan. Pharaoh was a representation, a human representation of the devil. And God says there's coming a day when not just the Israelites, but all people are going to be under the bondage of the devil. They're going to be living as slaves to Egypt. Egypt is a representation of a land of sin. Catch it on? The Israelites in the Old Testament become everybody in the New Testament. The Pharaoh of the Old Testament becomes the devil. Egypt, a land where they were in bondage and slavery, becomes sin. And those people without Jesus are in bondage and slavery to Satan and sin. And if something doesn't happen, they will what? They will perish. So what did God do for the Israelites? He sent a tiger. You Clemson fans were smiling. <laughs> no, he sent a gamecock. I would have done that. You would have done that. God says not that that's not the way I do business. I'm sending a lamb. I'm sending a lamb on this first Passover. And this little lamb that I send to you, he is going to take on the serpent of Pharaoh in Egypt. Because that was the symbol of Pharaoh in Egypt, was a serpent, a snake. Now let me ask you this. Y'all are smart people. I know none of you gamble, but if you were gamblers, would you bet in a fight, a battle, a conflict, on a lamb who's the slowest, weakest, dumbest animal there is against a serpent? Big, fangs, poisonous. 
would you put your bet on? Now, y'all look so pious out there, you know. You had $500, and I told you the lambs over here, the serpents over here, go put your money down. You'd run me over to get over there. Just like David and Goliath. You'd have put your money on Goliath. No, you know you would. But God doesn't do things our way. God said, I'm going to have a shepherd boy take on that human tank, and he's going to beat him, and you're going to lose your money. And I'm going to bring a lamb, and he's going to take on that serpent, and you're going to lose your money. God says, I'm going to bring a lamb. And this lamb here is a preview of another lamb who's coming later. In fact, they're going to be identical and how they're characterized. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That's pretty good. So now we're going to look at this first Passover lamb. Why is he given such a big deal in Exodus chapter 12? Because this lamb in Exodus 12, pay attention, is going to do what? Deliver the people from Pharaoh, deliver the people from Egypt, give them life outside of Pharaoh and Egypt so they won't perish. And all of this is a preview of another Lamb of God. Do you think it was just coincidental? Do you think it was just accidental when the great John the Baptist, the greatest prophet who has ever lived, was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And by the way, those of you going to Israel, you can get baptized in the Jordan River. But John was baptizing in the Jordan River, and all of a sudden he stops. And he sees somebody coming off in the distance. And he stops and he says one of the most profound statements ever made in the Bible. He says, look, all of you look, behold, there is the Lamb of God. This is the Passover Lamb of God who's come. Why has he come? To take away the sins of the world. Very quickly, from Exodus chapter 12, let me give you five things about this first Passover lamb and show you that he also is a picture of the Lamb of God whose name is Jesus. I want you to notice in verse 5 that this first Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12 that God is going to use to deliver his people from Pharaoh and Egypt so they won't perish there. I want you to notice it's a special lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Your lamb shall be without blemish. So when the Israelites have to go out and choose a lamb out of the pen, God says you're to choose a male lamb. He can't be more than one year old. And I want him to be visibly without spot or blemish. Don't bring me no handicapped lamb. Don't bring me no deformed lamb. Don't bring me no defective lamb. Don't bring me no lamb that has blemishes. Don't bring me some sick lamb. Don't bring me some lame lamb. You bring me a lamb that, visibly speaking, is absolutely perfect. Why would God say that? 
because he's drawing us a preview of another Lamb of God who will come, whose name is, say it, whose name is it? He's Jesus. And Jesus came, and he was the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. Pontius Pilate was one of the most crooked, corrupt politicians who's ever lived. He'd feel perfectly happy in Congress today. Say, Pastor, who are you talking about? You figure it out. And Jesus comes to Pontius Pilate. The Roman, the, the religious leaders want Jesus crucified. They've trumped up a bunch of charges against him. And Pilate examines him. Not once, not twice, three times Pilate examines Jesus. What he's trying to do is find a crack in Jesus' armor. Something that he can say, okay, he is worthy of death. And Pilate grills him over and over and over again. This coy politician, clever politician. And his conclusion after examining Jesus is profound. He goes to the basin filled with water. And he says, I find no fault with him, but I'm washing my hands of this whole matter. You can have him. I find no fault with him. I've examined him. He has no handicaps. He has no deformities. He has no defections. He has no blemishes. He's never done anything wrong that I can see. Wow. You see how this comes together? Boy, this ought to get you excited. You ought to be shouting in a Baptist church on this one. That's okay, I'll shout for you. Stewardship team said I get time and a half if I shout. You sit there, that's okay. You pay up. He was a special lamb, but also I want you to notice he was a separated lamb. Notice this first Passover lamb was taken, it says in verse 5, he was to be taken away from the other sheep and from the other goats. On the 10th day of April, which is Nisan, that's the first month of the Jewish calendar, on the 10th day of that first month, they're to go out and define the lamb. He has to be perfect, remember? And once they find him, they take him away. They separate him from all the other goats and lambs, sheep, and they put him in his own little private pen. Why would they do that? Why were they told to do that? What sense does it make to do that? It's because when Jesus, the Lamb of God, came later, the Bible says he was one of us, but he was separated from us because he had no sin. He was a man who was sinless. He was a God-man. He was absolutely perfect. He had no sin. He was with us, but he was separated from us. Not only was this lamb special, not only was this lamb separated, but notice in verse 6, this Passover lamb that God sent to deliver his people from Pharaoh and Egypt, from Satan and sin, so they wouldn't perish, wouldn't go to hell. Notice he was slain. You heard it. He was slain. Look at verse 6. It says, You keep him in isolation to the 14th day of the same month. And then he should be what? 
killed. In the evening, you kill him. You lay him out on a slab. Tie him down. Take your knife. And slit his throat. And this innocent lamb who's never done anything, his red blood is going to flow. Bloody religion? God didn't think so. What about Jesus? What did the Father do to the Son? That was an altar, ladies and gentlemen. And God spread his son out on that altar and tied him down. And God slew his son. The father took the life of the son. The father spared Isaac, but he wouldn't spare Jesus. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, suspended on a cross between heaven and earth, shed his blood and died for us. That's why Paul said of Jesus, he's the Passover lamb which was sacrificed for us. Even if we couldn't figure it out, Paul says, he was the Passover lamb. The one that you read about in Exodus 12, that was Jesus a picture, a preview, a shadow of Jesus. Now what happened because of that? This special separated slain lamb, fourthly, was a saving lamb now. Notice in verse 7 what they did with the blood and why they needed to do it. And they shall take of the blood. This is the blood that was shed by the little lamb. And they shall strike it on the two side posts of the, of the door and on the upper door post of the house. Why should they do that? What's the purpose of doing that? Verse 23, if you go down to Exodus 12, go to verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door. He will not suffer the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. So the Israelites were to take the shed blood of that little lamb. They would put it on the sides of their front door, on the top of their front door, and when the angel of death came, and he was, wherever he saw the blood, he would go away. He would bypass that house. Wages of sin is death, the soul that sinneth will die. But when you're covered in the blood, death passes you by. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he be dead, yet he shall, help me out, live. That little lamb saved a family. And that lamb saved whosoever will. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And then lastly, the last characteristic, and we're through. This, this lamb in Exodus 12, he was special, he was separated, he was slain, he was saving. But he was also shared. What did they do after they shed the blood of the little lamb? They put the blood on the doorpost of their home. What did they do with the meat of that lamb? The Bible says they roasted it, put bitter herbs on it, and did what with it? They eat it. Why did they bring the lamb's flesh inside of them? I mean, what was the purpose of that? Now, we're talking about foundational things. Why is this important? Though some things it's not. Because when we get saved by the lamb, the Bible says the Spirit of God comes where? Help me out. Inside of us. Don't get just send thrills down your back. Man, I love this stuff. Next time you read the Old Testament, look for Jesus. You'll see him. When you and I ask Jesus to come into our life, he moves inside of us. Our body becomes the house of God. Wow. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Now do you see why all this is important? Why some preacher or church or denomination just can't utterly say we don't want to believe it anymore, it's irrelevant, it's unimportant, it's insignificant, it's insidious. Eh. Do you understand what they're doing when they do that? They're taking away salvation. That's what they're doing. The painter in closing was painting a picture of Jesus dying on the cross on the sidewalk. And a little girl came up and she watched him pain a little while. And she said, Mister, why is Jesus being crucified? Was he a bad man? And the painter says, No. He was dying for the sins of others. And the little girl asked a question. Is he dying for you too? For God so loved the world, that's others. How about you? For God so loved you. Have you taken what you know and made it personal? Each family had to shed blood on their own doorpost. You can't put somebody else's shed blood on your doorpost. You've got to get your own blood. You get it right there. 
Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.